Hi, my name's Alex Kelly, co-founder of Bright Flag, and this is In-House Outliers, a podcast where I interview those who've taken unconventional paths and challenged conventional notions of how in-house legal should operate. I am delighted to be joined today by Elizabeth Rancourt-Smith to share her story. Thank you so much for joining us today, Elizabeth. Thanks so much for having me, Alex. I'm really excited. So let's start at the beginning. What led you to studying at Emerson College? I guess that's kind of a, a bigger story and requires a little bit of background. So I am from Waterville, Maine, which is a town in central Maine. And I was the first member of my immediate family to go to college. My parents were blue collar. They were hardworking Franco-American from families that worked hard in mills that are situated around Maine's French Canadian communities. My dad was a Navy vet and he worked as a machinist for a shipyard. My mom worked at a grocery store for 22 years. And in my extended family, I only had one cousin who had ever graduated college who became an engineer and who I sort of idolized. So I was taught in this background that education would be my route to a better life. The means that would provide me the ability to be an independent thinker. My dad was kind of rebellious by nature. And I grew up feeling the concept of the importance of being an informed analyst of all things in life, to think for myself, to be unafraid to face up to and question the status quo and people in charge. So really to lead with a lot of courage and bravery in my life using education and information as a basis for that. As a person, I'm really empathetic and really academic. And that kind of makes me just like a giant walking human sponge for all the things everywhere. I started planning for college in the fifth grade. So I was, you know, 10, 11 years old. I wanted to be a writer. I was inspired by my love of poetry, really, really into the poetry. <laughs> In high school, I was a TRIO program student, which is a summer program for first-generation college students from low-income families. I lived at the University of Maine at Farmington every summer in high school. They assisted me with college exposure, with applications, with tours, with SATs and AP tests, all the things that I otherwise wouldn't have had any idea how to navigate or any access to. So I'm naturally sort of driven by my heart, by my passions. I crave adventure <laughs> to the point that I'm like often a little, a little on the impulsive side. I was attracted to going to Emerson for its setting first. I needed to be in the city. I love the city of Boston. I love its people. And I was really compelled by the energy. Of, of Boston and of Emerson. And the school's reputation for its excellence in the communications field and the performing arts, and because of their very enthusiastic and fervent support of their really sizable LGBTQ community, that really clinched my decision. And I really had my heart set on Emerson. I uh, majored initially in print journalism, 
with the dream of becoming a hard-hitting editorial writer. I wanted the ability and the platform to advocate for change, to voice opposition to those boundaries that keep so many people back. By using a means that I knew I was good at in writing and maybe having an opinion, but it occurred to me as I progressed in my studies by the end of my freshman year that maybe my youthful idealism got the best of me. And I became a little disillusioned with the sort of the burgeoning biased politics in journalism that had really begun at that time in the early 2000s when we switched to, you know, constant news and that whole game. And I switched majors to public relations and marketing, thinking that if I was going to play that game, I'd at least try to make it profitable. And Lord only knows, I should not have been trusted with any kind of these real decisions at the age of 19. But unfortunately, also at the time, I was struggling with some mental wellness issues that really stemmed from some past traumas. And this is circa 2004. And we really didn't have the same kind of open dialogue socially anywhere at the time when it came to issues of mental illness and wellness. And the support that I received was pretty subpar, certainly not up to the standards that we would expect in 2022. My poor attendance at school due to various depressive episodes caused me to become suspended. And I landed on academic suspension and it was a really tough blow. I went from being sort of an academic superstar with accolades for leadership skills, scholarships, sort of the hopes and dreams of this small town girl from this blue collar background. It's all very small town girl on a Saturday night feel. And I felt like a total failure for reasons that now I understand were beyond what I had the capacity to control. So I eventually moved back to Maine to regroup. And about a year after that, I pulled myself up and tried again through a local branch of what was then the for-profit Kaplan University, which was eventually bought out by Purdue University Global. There's been many guests on in-house outliers who, like yourself, shared that kind of critical role somebody played in their in their family or, or or a teacher at an early stage that gave them the inspiration to kind of see education as a way to a, a better life. And I think you've touched on something we're really passionate about here at Bright Flag, diversity and inclusion. I think mental health has just come into focus in a way that wasn't the case a few years ago. I think the pandemic has probably accelerated some of that. It sounds like it was an incredibly challenging time in your life I imagine took a huge amount of resilience to pick yourself back up to go back to and to finish your education. What was your thought process then about your first job after college and where did you find yourself once you finished at Purdue? I went to Purdue, which of course was Kaplan at the time, because it was really kind of the most viable option for me in that moment. There were some roadblocks for me going back to school, but I had a clear drive that I wanted to do it. And I needed an option that allowed me to finish my education while I was a full-time working adult, because I didn't really have a choice to be a full-time working adult or not. They offered a paralegal studies program. I really had been enamored with the entire process of lawmaking. And I have a really, really deep interest in the American justice system 
but I'm not really built of the kind of stuff that you need to go into politics. So I followed that course of study to see what it was like from the inside, because I thought that perhaps I had the skills that would make me proficient at paralegal work. With the intention of moving forward and finishing my bachelor's degree and moving on to law school, hoping to work as a voice for nonprofits and smaller groups, amplifying voices that didn't have the privilege to be heard on a normal basis. When I finished my associate degree, we were in the middle of the Great Recession. It was at the beginning of 2009. And so there weren't a lot of jobs. And despite interviewing with a number of law firms of various sizes, the only job offer I actually received was with a private practice specializing in family law, which I had zero desire to put myself through and much respect to, to those folks who do that work. So I sort of abandoned those ambitions and I stayed the course where I was. Now you ask what was my first job after college, but really my first job was when I was 10. It's the sum total of my work experience throughout my entire journey that has created the roadmap to where I sit today. I would have loved to have been somebody with the privilege to take my first job after college, but I started demonstrating and assisting dance classes when I was 10 to help pay for my dance tuition. I was in the dance studio five or six days a week. It was kind of my happy place. And then I got my first, you know, quote unquote, real job, legal job when I was 15 working in fast food, where I was awful. I was the worst. I worked like maybe three hours a week. I cleaned ketchup off trays and it was definitely not a glamorous start to, to my working life. And then I got a job at a local diner waitressing when I was 16. I worked there all through high school. And then additionally, I worked at an assisted living retirement home for elderly women during the week in the summers. So then I went on to college while at Emerson, I taught at several dance studios in the greater Boston area and at a community center. I worked a work study job on campus as a seamstress in the theater department's costume shop, which, you know, is handy in life. <laughs> and I worked as a supervisor and a projectionist at a movie theater, all while attending school full time and continuing to try to audition for various performance and dance roles and jobs. I'm a dancer, I'm a tap dancer, and part of me wanted to pursue that route in life. Looking back, it's kind of not surprising that I broke under the strain of doing all of that at once, but I was super driven and it's much easier to see it all clearly <laughs> when you look back 20 years later. You know, when I eventually folded on myself and came back to Maine, I worked for a bit as a waitress and then a Starbucks opened in town. And about six months after I came back to Maine, I started doing that. My sort of like dynamic and eclectic work history really has provided me with a whole host of soft skills, right? And I hate to even call them soft skills because they're important skills and they're skills that I lean on every single day. The ability to stay composed under immense amounts of pressure to work really deftly and efficiently to appease really difficult customers, to think on my feet and build relationships. This is applicable widely. And I credit all of what seems like a random string of employment with really providing me with those skills. Then I had done some time supervising a licensed Starbucks that was within the movie theater that I had worked in in college. I knew the company to align with my ethical values, and I saw it as a means to provide 
some stability, some health and investment benefit, fairly decent pay that sort of sat well enough with my restless sort of justice seeking soul. And that still allowed me the flexibility to continue pursuing my dance career in my mid twenties. So that's what I did. And that's where I was when I eventually graduated because of the recession, I just decided to stay put and work my way up. That's fascinating, Liz. And I think you might win the award for in-house outliers guest who has had the broadest and greatest number of different roles. I imagine a huge amount of skills and experiences built up there that are useful every day in legal operations. You touched on your love of dance, your work as a dance instructor. I understand you continue to work as a dance instructor today. What do you enjoy most about that work? So I do continue to work as a dance instructor today. I've done this since I was nine years old. I've been teaching for almost 20 years and it really, in the makeup of like my fabric of my soul, you know, I come from a musical family and I just have always connected to dance and performing in a way that I don't connect to anything else. It also sort of became my lifeline as a child. I was quiet and studious and who I am today is really because of dance in my life. It helped me become bolder. Um, It helped me find sort of my innate strength and taught me lessons that I carry with me every day. Dedication, discipline, creative problem solving while being quick on my feet, both literally and figuratively. I can change course with a plan at the drop of a hat because the show must go on and I can direct people to follow me while I do that. It's the tenacity and dedication of a dancer, like my other sort of eclectic background, is really handy every day. So knowing how to read an audience, how to elicit a response, like these are great skills to have in business. It was natural for me to become a dance instructor, and I couldn't imagine my life if it wasn't part of it. Over the years, really become an important channel for my energy outside of the office. What I like most about teaching is I have the ability to grow an artist. I teach primarily tap dance and really teaching beginners is sort of my jam. Like it's great to work with people who are phenomenal and there's a rush that comes with that. But I really love teaching children and teaching them to love the art of tap dance to give them the tools they need to move forward in a way that is technically sound, but also really well-informed. I love teaching tap history and exposing my students to the community of tap dance, which if you're not familiar with it, is really unique onto itself. It's really a big, sort of a big family. And I feel a great responsibility to carry this on, not just as a teacher and an adult and somebody entrusted with the education of small children, but Also, because I'm a white person teaching an art form that was grown out of, you know, enslaved Black American experiences, I want my students to always represent the style and the culture that we are learning with clear understanding and with authenticity. And I really owe it to the tap community, its culture, and the old masters of tap dance, who we have a great respect for, to make sure my students know where the dance comes from. I say often that I hope I still teach dance when I'm 90, I'll do it sitting in a chair. (laughs) So 
Liz, it's hugely rewarding work. I actually have a distant relation who I think now is 92 and she lives just outside Boston and she's still mm-hmm. teaching ballet to this day. So Amazing, amazing. Yeah. The Azar Ballet Studio. And, and like yourself, I think her, her love is working with students who are picking it up for the first time. And it's fantastic that you're educating them on the history of the, the dance as well. Returning then to your time at Starbucks, you referenced the fact that you decided to build a career there after college. How did your role evolve over the years at Starbucks? It evolved greatly. So the, the period of time that I spent at Starbucks, I started there as a barista I was promoted shortly after to a supervisor and then up through assistant store manager into a store manager. I worked in five different locations as sort of my home stores over my 12 and a half years with the company and made appearances at countless other stores over those years. I had a few really influential mentors during that time that taught me leadership values, leadership techniques helped me build my understanding of business acumen. And the time that I spent there was really a period of great change for the corporation itself. So when I began back in 2006, we were still running like back office DOS prompts off the like store, the one store computer to close out the evening and, you know, taking paper checks as payment. So as Starbucks during that time, developed their processes to scale their operations efficiently throughout those early mid aughts to the kind of the mid 2010s, I was growing into my roles there. I became kind of the perfect storm of preparation (laughs) for what my career is now. I absorbed more than just the what in the processes, but I also paid attention to the why we were implementing it. What is the bigger picture here? And the house, what is the process they're taking us through to bring in these processes and streamline this business? And I paid attention to this while it was happening as Starbucks began to move toward lean thinking and streamlining processes. And I think because of this timing, I learned really valuable firsthand fundamentals that are absolutely vital to my job in legal ops today. I learned how to manage widespread change to a variety of different stakeholders involved. To know how to manage it for my own purpose is one thing, but I also got firsthand experience with how my peers needed it to be managed, how my employees needed that change to be managed, and how it affected my customers, the other stakeholders in it. And really got to to make some key observations of the incremental steps and missteps that you can take during a process like that. So working through that, the sort of base level implementation made me kind of uniquely qualified for an operationally minded role like legal operations. It's given me a really thorough perspective of the effects of process and change from the bottom up. And it really, I think today, it allows me to lead change and process with a greater amount of social emotional intelligence, balancing the data-driven decision-making that comes with it. I was really in that time surprised to find that I have kind of a niche and maybe slightly nerdy (laughs) enjoyment of learning to use data to analyze and solve problems, something completely unexpected uh, that I would find interest in, but data is beautiful. 
in that time, I also leveraged my position to allow me to connect with and make a difference in the community around me. I implemented a lot of different community initiatives, you know, locally in each of my stores during my time with Starbucks. I found that I really thrived when I could find a greater purpose that reached beyond my sales figures. That's a great grounding in a lot of the core competencies that are critical to be successful in operations, understanding change management, implementing processes, refining processes, bringing people on that journey with you that, as you say, the kind of the emotional intelligence that is required to do that with different stakeholders. And I share your love of data. Was there, was there any specific project that you felt you learned the most from during your time at Starbucks? There were a lot of projects and it sounds a little bit corny, but like, I really feel like I learned something every day and I continue to learn something every day. So it's really hard to pick in that like decade plus of experiences. My greatest learnings, I think really just came while I was on the floor, elbow to elbow with my partners. They, their employees are called partners. I really, really strongly believe that internal leadership, the idea of servant leadership, leading by example, leading as a means of informed delegation. So the whole team comes to a desired end result rather than using leadership as a path to power or influence. I really believe in that. So I made sure to, you know, mop floors and clean bathrooms and sling lattes, just like everybody else that worked for me always every day. And it was always my goal to be more of a guide than a boss. I hired a lot of people who kind of just needed a chance, <laughs> who maybe didn't have on the outside at initial first glance the, you know, the best fit applications or resumes, but had something about them that seemed like, you know, could be uplifted by being given an opportunity. So I took chances with people pretty often. I thought it best to be the right kind of example day to day for them. And the, and the right kind of leader for them to show them action rather than tell them what to do. I wasn't always perfect. I made mistakes often and a lot more once I became a mom and I was exhausted dealing with postpartum issues and balancing the life of a family and a young child with two parents working in retail management. I felt the weight of genuinely wanting to be the right kind of person and make the right decision for these people. We think about what is the most impactful project or what's the most influential thing. I think working through this, working through those mistakes, working through that time and really processing through it made me a better leader. And I think that of all the experiences I had, it was that, it, it was the mistakes, it was those missteps that really were impactful for me. My fabric as a person, I think is built differently than the image that I had at the time of the consummate professional, you know, that ability to be separated and impersonal. And, you know, I, I really, I wear my heart on my sleeve. I try really hard to build genuine connections to people. I'm an open book for better or for worse. And it made me a really empathetic leader and it serves me well every day. So I think by and large, that really is the most important thing of my time there at Starbucks. 
there's so much there, Liz, and what you touched on there, the kind of the idea of servant leadership and, and leading by example for your team. That's something I was I was listening to yesterday about uh, Angela Merkel, who's just retired mm-hmm. as the German Chancellor. And I'm not sure if you saw when, when she announced the restrictions in Germany at the beginning of the pandemic. The next day, she went to her local supermarket herself and was pictured buying toilet paper and her not hoarding. And, and she had, the message she had delivered to the German people was, we need to stay calm. We need to look after each other. Do not kind of go out and, and kind of mass buy products in the shops. And then she, she was a very normal person who went and did that herself and led by example. And I, I think it's, it's such a powerful thing to kind of, whether you're leading a country, whether, whether you're leading a legal operations team, whether you're leading in, in Starbucks is setting the right example, rolling your sleeves up alongside the people that you're working with, having empathy, as you say, for the work that they're doing every day and the position you're putting them in and what you're asking them to do. I think it just makes you so much more effective when you, you're of walking in their shoes as well. For sure. I mean, how can you how can you create a vision and a plan for people, for a business, for a country, for anything, if you don't understand the parts of the puzzle that make up that plan, right? Like fundamentally. So for sure. 100%. And I think getting people to buy into that vision, I think as, as Angela Merkel pro- probably really successfully did by kind of practicing what she preached in, in Germany, I think is, is really powerful. And something you touched on there as well was the importance of kind of learning from mistakes, understanding that not everything is going to go go to plan. Just before the podcast, I was just having an onboarding session with some of our new team members. And one of our core values is win and lose together. And, and the importance of kind of proactively understanding that we will collectively lose as a team. We're not going to get everything right. And and those are the learning opportunities and they're the best opportunities to figure out where you can improve a process or or make a fundamental change and, and not having a kind of a culture of blame. And I think as a, as a leader, sometimes there can be that pressure to project perfection rather than accept the fact that mistakes are going to get made, whether by yourself or by the team. And it's how you react to those really that, that is, makes the difference. What attracted you to Tilson as a company, first of all? That's a good question. Shortly after I had my son in 2014, I started to realize that retail store management was really challenging to maintain sort of at the level and with the expectations that I put on myself as a leader, which I just, as somebody who feels it super important to be genuine and true to myself, I just couldn't there to sort of abandon those fundamentals. And I was really hungry for a change, for some growth, for career mobility that I just knew I couldn't achieve in that career avenue with a small child, with a husband in retail management as well. I I didn't have a lot of mobility and I really wanted to find something that utilized my strengths as we all do, right? You know, I was almost 35 years old and I knew that starting over would be challenging, right? Midstream career change in my mid thirties. I set out for the challenging world of, you know, changing my career. So I sent my resume to, I think over 30 different job listings. I think that people got my resume and they saw a Starbucks store manager with fairly minimal educational credentials rather than kind of reading into the attributes that those experiences would have added to my skill set. So looking deeper, looking beyond and reading between the lines there, I rarely had a chance to even interview. Kind of in desperation, I posted a 
a call to arms of sorts on my social media. And a former teacher of mine at Kaplan, who I had stayed friends with in the decade after I graduated, she worked at the time as a senior counsel for Tilton. And she let me know they were hiring. So I had never really thought <laughs> to look at a career in a telecommunications infrastructure company. But when I did look at it, I realized that the ethics and the values of the company were really in alignment with my own. So I sort of tossed caution to the wind and went for it. You know, Telson itself started as a small IT consulting company in the mid 90s. And, you know, we say Telson is on a mission to build America's information infrastructure. We consult on, we build, we operate telecommunications networks. As it stands today, we work with large carrier clients, small wireless clients, local governments, jurisdictions, co-ops, broadband providers, all sort of those groups within the telecommunications industry. I'm really proud of the work that we've done specifically over the pandemic in the rural broadband space with our advocacy for bridging the digital divide, which became really important during the pandemic, and sort of the phenomenal conscientious leadership within the company. But... I had zero idea about what I was getting into when I was going into my interview for the position here. I didn't know these things. And the position that I went for was site acquisition, doing permitting and parcel reviews and such for our real estate elements of our business. It really was a complete departure from certainly anything I'd ever done. The person who interviewed me for that position suggested I interview for a different internal position that was unlisted, and he conveniently passed me on to that former teacher and to Tilson's general counsel, Tim Schneider. I'm pretty sure that they hired me based on the fact that they had that insider knowledge of how I performed academically, because otherwise I pretty much just passionately ranted about my most recent community engagement projects. I hadn't really touched anything in the realm of legal in almost a decade, I had never actually worked as a paralegal. <laughs> so I think I was something of a wild card that they were betting on. And I am so grateful for that. And so they hired me as a legal support specialist, which was a sort of a hybrid paralegal -y role working for the team, which was just the two of them at the time. I did sort of basic paralegal and administrative duties and supported real estate related legal research and permitting. And you talk about the structure of the legal team when you joined, there was just the general counsel and the former teacher working as a senior counsel. And I'm sure they're eternally grateful for identifying your talent and the potential that you had to be successful in helping them scale legal operations. How has your role then evolved over the three and a half years, I think, that you've been at Tilson? It's been a journey, a very fast journey. Since 2018, I moved from an administrative paralegal position to this legal ops position that requires me to think critically, to plan, to provide insight. So it's certainly an evolution you know, in line with Tilson's trajectory, my role has edged and flowed and grown and changed as necessary. Legal operations has grown into a force of its own in the industry, right? Really in the last few years. And I'd like to think that 
Tilson Legal Operations has also. I've been really so lucky to have the foresight and support of a really forward-thinking general counsel and a team of colleagues who really champion legal ops. They lift me up daily with their, their top-notch meme game and our sort of team squirrel-like quest for random non-sequiturs. Our team's focus on being true partners to our business and being a catalyst rather than a roadblock for our business is partially driven and supported by our ability to be forward thinking with our legal operations planning. And we all have a clear sort of understanding of that. As my role has evolved, I've also been blessed with really spectacular legal ops specialist who works for me, Rose Nelson, who is like my right and left brain on some days. We now carry all of the regulatory and legal business processes that support both our legal team and Tilson as an organization. But in my day-to-day, I now handle legal operations process oversight. I collaborate on future process and platform strategies. I assist with corporate governance. I administrate our CLM as well as our CAP table and shareholder platform. I continue to assist on what I would kind of call like paralegal light work, handle and analyze our outside counsel invoicing and spending. I assist our GC with divisional budget tracking, and I handle all of our corporate compliance processes across all of our entities, um, which include Tilson. It includes our public utility infrastructure affiliate, Tilson Infrastructure, and even our newly established Canadian presence, (laughs) among others. I had the Super fun task this year of filing documents in French for the first time. So I hope I made my great-great-grandparents proud. And in addition to that, in my role now, I personally train the stakeholders in the organization on how to use our CLM platform, which touches every single one of them. I take the responsibility because I really like to have a connection point to the business It's important to me that I provide them with the who, the what, the where, and the why of using the platform so they really clearly understand why adoption and integration of it into their own workday is is really important to keeping our business protected while maintaining the right kind of scalability, the transparency, creating a historical record, and maintaining our velocity. So while it might seem to them initially to be a lot harder to integrate a platform rather than just shooting off an email to somebody on our legal team and just having them take care of it and having it mysteriously reappear fully executed, filed for them, (laughs) by touching base with them, it helps with the adoption to really emphasize the bigger picture. And that bigger picture actually helps with our overall turnover time and the velocity of a contract of contracting and gives them a level of visibility that we didn't have before. And then additionally, our team does a great deal more than just contract management. So to have that adopted and bought in by the organization is really key for us to be able to balance the rest of our duties. We, we have a, a team sort of SLA that we try our best to adhere to as a commitment to our business stakeholders. And since adopting our CLM, we use Ironclad, Back in early 2020, our team has dropped, like, for example, for a simple example, the turnaround of unnegotiated NDA from initiation point through review to full execution 
from what was an average of seven days back then to within 24 hours. And in any given month, I process anywhere from 50 to 75 NDAs through our system. On our larger client contracts, they went from having an average turn of 70 days to within 30. So the data nerd in my heart is always very fulfilled by being able to track and see this growth. And that's really become a big part of my role. And then additionally, I am super active and engaged in providing the development and support that my direct report needs. And that just stems from my experience in management previously. She handles the part of our processes that connect to our various project teams on the ground directly. So things like insurance and sureties, vendor and client compliance professional licensing for general contracting and professional engineering, CLE management for our attorneys and governance to our professional engineering corporation entity. She does a lot and she's phenomenal at it. And together we sort of tag team assisting our attorneys with claims management. And we've also produced a series of internal CLE presentations that our attorneys teach, highlighting the strengths and specialties of each of our attorney peers. Our entire team really has a drive of being natural educators and leaders. It's nice to provide those CLE opportunities that apply more directly to in-house practice and the types of legal issues that we encounter within telecom and construction. So really my role in legal ops has morphed over time to really encompass all of the operational aspects that don't involve an attorney. It leaves them to do their thing that they do. We just added another non-attorney specialist to our legal ops team who handles administrative functions in the real estate part of our team, really similar to my first position here at, at Tilton. Really, we've grown from just myself, our GC, and a real estate counsel to three specialized senior counsels and myself reporting to the GC, two attorneys and a legal ops admin supporting our real estate division, and a legal ops admin that supports me and the remainder of the legal team in just the last couple of years. When I first began in legal ops, I often felt less than because of my non-traditional journey, because I was the non-attorney, the only non-attorney at the time on my team. And really over the course of the last few years, the most important thing that I've learned as my role has evolved is that the skill set I bring as a non-attorney with an entirely different kind of eccentric, certainly very eclectic background, is that it is actually my greatest asset and my greatest contribution to the team. There's so much to unpack there. As you know, there is no defined career path for somebody to be successful in legal operations. And for sure. From my experience over the last eight years at Bright Flag, the most successful legal ops people come from a wide array of backgrounds and experiences. And very often it is the superpower is, is kind of bringing to the legal team a skill set that they don't have and, and, and a perspective that they don't have. One of the things you touched on there was the importance of your alignment and your relationship with your general counsel. I, I suspect, and it certainly sounds like you are their right and left hand and right and left brain in the way that your legal operations specialist that works you, with you is to you. And I think that, in my experience, tends to be the recipe for success when you start with that alignment, when you start with some of the key principles you were talking about, being a trusted business partner, 
focusing on the legal service delivery to the business and how you can be proactive in doing that. And, and what I loved that you touched on there was those can sound like truisms and buzzwords sometimes, but what you have done is backed it up with the impact for the business in the kind of speed of execution of contracts, the improvement in delivery time. And that is really where legal departments need to get to is speaking the language of the business, quantifying the value that they're providing, improving those processes that speed up execution on key transactions, key deals, key projects. And it sounds like as a legal team, you're kind of availing of that great opportunity to start with the process, building the processes mm-hmm. rather than kind of just throwing more lawyers at problems, which is far more impactful. We like yourselves use ironclad. I also have the kind of legal function reporting up to me and we're hyper-focused on 24 hour turnaround times and, and maintaining that SLA and, and understanding the impact that can make at the end of a quarter, end of a, a fiscal period in, in helping the business achieve their objectives. So there's so much there one final question related to the kind of legal ops team is i know you're as we've already touched on you're incredibly passionate about diversity and inclusion how have you gone about fostering diversity within the legal team at at tilson that's a great question i look at diversity and inclusion in a number of different ways right there's no single right way to foster diversity it's a process that you have to be committed to for the long haul any real change, any fundamental change doesn't happen overnight. It's a mixture of speaking up and out and addressing the underlying systemic causes for a lack of diversity. It's about opening the door and giving someone else a seat at the table and knowing when to take action versus when it's really just time to listen and step back and be quiet. Personally, I am also really cautious that when we approach diversity, when we approach fostering diversity, that things are done for the right reason, right? It shouldn't be examined for PR or performative reasons, but rather because as an organization, you believe in the purpose and the process and you're committed to it. So I'm really lucky to be supported by really an entire team, both within the legal department here at at Tilton, but also just at Tilton in general, that really shares some of my passion for amplifying diversity. Our attorneys are 50% female. Our entire team is two-thirds female. Our externships and internships are, you know, I see those as a really viable gateway to providing non-traditional law students experience within the in-house world. But really, it's our partnerships with our outside counsel, where we currently do the most work fostering diversity. So we state really clearly in our billing guidelines, our commitment to promoting diversity, and we adhere to them. Prior to focusing our attention on fostering diversity, our legal team's spend was primarily, as one would guess, white, cis-hat presenting men, accounting for about 80% of our total spend. And then in 2021, so about a year after we started this initiative, we ended the year with 60% of our outside counsel spend with female presenting attorneys. 30% of our outside counsel spend was with BIPOC and AAPI presenting attorneys. And 10% of our spend was specifically utilizing BIPOC and AAPI women, really by clearly 
stating and prioritizing who we wish to provide us with representation, we've begun to flip the statistics. Someone has to walk before we can run, right? So by drawing a clear line on our expectations, we're creating a greater demand for more diverse representation in the legal industry. And we're really doing our part to push in that direction in whatever small ways we can. When I track these statistics, I pay really close attention to what they're invoicing us for. Who is billing for the work and what duties are they doing? With the goal of making sure that we're partnering with firms who are not being performative for the sake of fulfilling our requests, but actively doing their part to diversify and provide avenues for a diverse set of attorneys within the industry. And diversity means so many things, diversity of gender and sexual identity, orientation, physical ability, race, age, education. And we really just believe, and I personally very much believe that each of these things brings a different perspective, a different set of skills. And all of those are beneficial voices that deserve a seat at the table. I couldn't agree more, Liz, and it's one of our four core values here at Bright Flag, embrace authenticity, and and we really see that diversity of backgrounds and perspectives in every context, race, religion, gender, age, sexual orientation, disability, that brings a business strength, those different perspectives at the table, but there needs to be a clarity of purpose in these programs. I think what you've alluded to there is the power of tracking data and holding people to account for including our outside counsel in terms of how they're- That is beautiful. <laughs> that is beautiful. That's, that's a, a wonderful note to, to wrap up on. I really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah. A remarkable career journey. And I suspect in the world of legal operations, you're only getting started, but really appreciate you joining us today. I'm Alex Kelly, host of the In-House Outliers podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Brightflag, an AI-powered legal operations platform where corporate legal departments gain visibility into operations, maximize productivity, and engage with outside counsel strategically. If you like this episode, then you can find more information in our show notes. If you want to hear more, then you can also find more episodes at brightflag.com forward slash legal hyphen operations hyphen podcast. Thanks again for listening to the In-House Outliers podcast. We'll see you again next time.